This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara, 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. Today I'll be reading The Jovian Jest by Lilith Lorraine, which was first published in Science Wonder Quarterly, winter of 1930. I may also read a couple of her poems at the end of this show, so story maybe talk a little bit about her and then some of her poetry. Uh, I'll be playing mostly dissonant music from 1930, which was when our story was published. I'm starting with excerpts from Ruth Crawford Seeger's Diaphonic Suites, numbers one through four. So, right now, we're listening to Diaphonic Suite, number one for oboe. Part 2, Andante, performed by Christian Hommel. We'll follow that with Part 3 of Suite Number 1, Allegro, performed by James Ostrinik. After that, we'll play... Part of the suite number two for bassoon and cello. Part two, Andante Contendo by Helmets, Meinzer, and Wolfgang Rücker. A little bit about our composer, Ruth Crawford. So this is part two. Um, uh, Ruth Crawford Seeger was an American modernist composer, sometimes called an ultramodernist, depending on whose categories you're putting them in. In 1929, she studied with Charles Seeger, who later she married. Uh, in 1930, the year that these suites came out, um... She won the Guggenheim Fellowship and was the first female composer to do so. Uh, this, the pieces uh, from the Diaphonic Suite and later Piano Study in Mixed Accents um, are examples of her work that exploits dissonant counterpoint and American serial techniques. Her technique may have been influenced by Schoenberg, and many of her works from this period employed dissonant counterpoint, a theoretical compositional system developed by Charles Seeger, which he wrote about with input from Ruth Crawford Seeger in 1930. So, some say that maybe she should have actually been co-authored on the book about dissonant counterpoint that he wrote but she wasn't listed as co-author though there was a lot of her input into the book itself um and dissonant counterpoint is used by uh henry cowell joanna byer and others and i'll be playing some henry cowell and joanna byer from the same year 1930 just to give you an idea of what they were doing i also thought i'd play some schoenberg um, from the same year later in the show, along with some other contemporary composers. So this is Diaphonic Suite Number 2 for Basson and Cello, 
part two on Dante Cantando, and we'll hear part three con Brio, performed by Suzanne Heinemann and Maria Kitsopoulos. Uh, That's this. And we'll follow this with uh, suite number three, performed by Beat Zelensky and David Smyers, and a part of suite number four for oboe and cello, performed by Christian Hommel again with Helmets Mensler. So, now that you know a little bit about uh, Ruth Seeger and what the ultramodernists were doing in 1930, I'll switch to our story. I'll be on in a minute to start that. be reading The Jovial Jest by Lilith Lorraine, which was first published in Astounding, Volume 2, Number 2, in July, sorry, May of 1930. The Jovial Jest by Lilith Lorraine. There came t- to our pygmy... Pi- um, There came to our pygmy planet a radiant wanderer with a message and a jest from the vast universe. The Jovial Jest by Lilith Lorraine. Consternation reigned in Elsnor village when the nameless thing was discovered in Farmer Burns' corn patch. When the rumor began to gain credence that it was some sort of meteor from interstellar space, reporters and scientists and colleagues, uh, college professors, flocked to the scene, desirous of prying off particles for analysis. But they soon discovered that the thing was no ordinary meteor, for it glowed at night with a peculiar luminescence. They also observed that it was practically weightless, since it had embedded itself in the soft sand scarcely more than a few inches. By the time the first group of newspaper men and scientists had reached the farm, another phenomena was plainly observable. The thing was growing. 
Farmer Burns, with an eye to profit, had already built a picket fence around his starry visitor and was charging admission. He also flatly refused to permit the chipping off of specimens or even the touching of the object. His attitude was severely criticized, but he stubbornly clung to the theory that possession is nine points in law. It was Professor Ralston of Princeton who, on the third day after the fall of the meteor, remarked upon its growth. His colleagues crowded around him as he pointed out the peculiarity, and soon they discovered another factor, pulsation. Larger than a small balloon and gradually almost imperceivably expanding with its viscid transparency shot through with opalescent lights. The thing lay there in the deepening twilight and palpably shivered. As darkness descended, a sort of hellish radiance began to ooze from it. I say hellish, because there is no other word to describe that spectral, sulfurous emanation. A's the hanger-on around the pickets shuddered, shrank away from the weird light that was streaming out to them and tinting their faces with a ghastly greenish pallor. Farmer Burns, a small boy, moved by some imp of perversity, did a characteristically childish thing. He picked up a good-sized stone and flung it straight at the nameless mass. Instead of veering off and falling to the ground as from an impact with metal, the stone sank right through the surface of the thing as into a pool of protoplastic slime. When it reached the center core of the object, a more abundant life suddenly leaped and pulsed from the center to circumference. Visible waves of sentient color circled round the solid stone. Stabbing swords of light leaped forth from them, piercing the stone, crumbling it, absorbing it. When it was gone, only a red spot, like a bloodshot eye, throbbed eerily where it had been. Before the now thoroughly mystified crowd had time to remark upon this inexplicable disintegration, a more horrible manifestation occurred. The thing, as though thoroughly awakened and vitalized by its unusual fare, was putting forth a tentacle. Right from the top of the shivering globe, it pushed sluggishly, weaving and prescient of doom. 
wavering, it hung for a moment, turning, twisting, groping. Finally, it shot straight outward, swift as a, as a rattler's strike. Before the closely packed crowd could give room for escape, it had circled the neck of the nearest bystander, Bill Jones, a cattleman, and jerked him, writhing and screaming, into the reddish core. Stupefied with soul-chilling terror, with their mass consciousness practically annihilated before a deed with which their minds could make no association, the crowd could only gasp in sobbing unison and await the outcome. The absorption of the stone had taught them what to expect, and for a moment it seemed that their worst anticipations were to be realized. The sluggish currents circled through the thing, swirling the victim's body to the center. The giant tentacle drew back into the globe and became itself a current. The concentric circles merged, tightened, became one gleaming cord that encircled the helpless prey. From the inner circumference of this cord shot forth, not the swords of light that had powdered the stone to atoms, but myriads of radiant tentacles that gripped and cupped the body in a thousand places. Suddenly the tentacles withdrew themselves, all save the ones that grasped the head. These seemed to tighten their pressure, to swell and pulse with a grayish substance that was flowing from the cups into the cord and from the cord into the body of the mass. Yes, it was a grayish something, a smoke-like essence that was being drawn from the cranial cavity. Bill Jones was no longer screaming, and gibbering, but was stiff with the rigidity of stone. Notwithstanding, there was no visible mark upon his body. His flesh seemed unharmed. Swiftly came the awful climax. The waving tentacles withdrew themselves. The body of Bill Jones lost its rigidity. A heavy motion from the center of the thing propelled its cargo to the surface, and Bill Jones stepped out. Yes, he stepped out and stood for a moment, staring straight ahead, staring at nothing, glassily. Every person in the shivering, paralyzed group knew instinctively that something unthinkable had happened. Something had transpired. Something hitherto possible only in the abysmal spaces of the other side of things. Finally, he turned and faced the nameless object, raising his arms stiffly, automatically, as in a military salute. Then he turned and walked jerkily, mindlessly, round and round the globe, like a wooden soldier marching. Meanwhile, the thing lay gorged.
Professor Ralston was the first to find his voice. In fact, Professor Ralston was always finding his voice in the most unexpected places. But this time, it had caught a chill. It was trembling. Gentlemen, he began, looking down academically upon the motley crowd, as though doubting the aptitude of his salutation. Fellow citizens, he corrected. The phenomenon we have just witnessed is, to the lay mind, inexplicable. To me, and to my honorable colleagues, added as an afterthought. It is quite clear, quite clear indeed. We have before us a specimen, a perfect specimen, I might say, of a, a of a... He stammered in the presence of the unnameable... His hesitancy caused the rapt attention of the throng that was waiting breathlessly for an explanation. To the flicker back to the inexplicable in the fraction of a second that their gaze had been diverted from the thing to the professor, the object had shot forth another tentacle, gripping him round the neck and choking off his sentence with a horrid rasp that sounded like a death rattle. Needless to say, the revolting process that had turned Bill Jones from a human being into a mindless automaton was repeated with Professor Ralston. It happened as before, too rapidly for intervention, too suddenly for the minds of the onlookers to shake off the paralysis of an unprecedented nightmare. But when the victim was thrown to the surface, when he stepped out, drained of the grayish smoke-like essence, a tentacle still gripped his neck and another rested directly on top of his head. This latter tentacle, instead of absorbing from him, visibly poured into him what resembled a thread-like stream of violet light. Facing the cowering audience with eyes staring glassily, still in the grip of the unknowable, Professor Ralston did an unbelievable thing. He resumed his lecture at the exact point of interruption, but he spoke with the tonelessness of a machine, a machine that pulsed to the will of a dictator, inhuman and inexorable. What you see before you, the voice continued, the voice that no longer echoed the thoughts of the professor, is what you would call an amoeba, a giant amoeba. It is I, this amoeba, who is addressing you, children of an alien universe. It is I who, through this captured instrument of expression, whose queer language you can understand, and am explaining my presence on your planet. I pour my thoughts into this specialized brain box, 
which I have previously drained of its meager thought content. Here the honorable colleagues nudged each other gleefully. I have so drained it for the purpose of analysis, and that the flow of my own ideas may pass from my mind to yours, unimpeded by any distortion that might otherwise be caused by their conflict with the thoughts of this individual. First, I absorbed the brain content of this being who you call Bill Jones, but I found his mental instrument unavailable. It was technically untrained in the use of your words that would best convey my meaning. He possesses more of what you would call innate intelligence, but he has not perfected the mechanical brain through whose operation this innate intelligence can be transmitted to others and applied for practical advantage. Now this creature that I'm using is, as you might say, full of sound without meaning. His brain is a lumber room in which he has hoarded a conglomeration of clever and appropriate word forms with which to disguise the paucity of his ideas with which to express nothing. Yet the very abundance of material in his storeroom furnishes a discriminating mind with excellent tools for the transportation of its ideas into other minds. Know then that I am not here by accident. I am a space wanderer, an explorer from a super universe whose evolution has proceeded without variation along the lines of your amoeba. Your evolution, as I perceive from an analysis of the brain content of your professor, began its unfoldment in somewhat the same manner as our own. But in your smaller system, less perfectly adjusted than our own to the cosmic mechanism, a series of cataclysms occurred. In fact, your planetary system was itself a result of a catastrophe or of what might have been a catastrophe had the two great suns collided whose near approach caused the wrenching off of your planets. From this colossal accident, rare indeed, in the annals of stars, an endless chain of accidents was born, a chain of which this specimen, this professor, and this species that he represents is one of the weakest links. Your infinite variety of species is directly due to the ver- variety of adaptations necessitated by this train of accidents. In the super-universe from which I come, such derangements of celestial machinery simply do not happen. For this reason, our evolution has unfolded harmoniously among one line of development, whereas yours has branched out into diversified and grotesque expressions of the life principle. 
your so-called highest manifestation of this principle, namely your own species, is characterized by a great number of specialized organs. Through this very specialization of functions, however, you have fortified your individual immortality, and it has come about that your life stream is immortal. The primal cell is inherently immortal, but death follows in the wake of specialization. We, the beings of this amoeba universe, are individually immortal. We have no highly specialized organs to break down under the stress of environment. When we want an organ, we create it. When it has served its purpose, we withdraw it into ourselves. We reach out our tentacles and draw to ourselves whatsoever we desire. Should a tentacle be destroyed, we can put forth another. Our universe is beautiful beyond the dreams of your most inspired poets, whereas your landscapes, though lovely, are stationary, unchangeable, except through Herculean efforts. Ours are protean, eternally changing. With our own substance, we build our minarets of light, piercing the aura of infinity. At the bidding of our wills, we create, preserve, destroy, only to build again more gloriously. We draw our substance from the primates, as do your plants. And we constantly replace the electronic base of these primates with our own emaciations in much the same way as your nitrogen plants revitalize your soil. While we create and withdraw organs at will, we have nothing to correspond to your five senses. We derive knowledge through one sense only, or shall I say, a super sense. We see and hear and touch and taste and smell and feel and know, not through any one organ, but through our whole structure. The homogeneous force of our omnisubstance subjects the plural world to the processing of a powerful unity. This is 99, 91.9 KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. You're listening to Books and Blondes with Ray Guns. We're currently reading The Jovial Jest by Lilith Lorraine.
We can dissolve our bodies at will, retaining only the permanent atom of our being, the seed of life dropped on the soil of our planet by infinite intelligence. We can propel this indestructible seed on light rays through the depths of space. We can visit the farthest universe with the velocity of light, since light is our conveyance. In reaching your little world, I have consumed a million years, for my world is a million light years distant. Yet to my race, a million years is as one of your days. On arrival at any given destination, we can build our bodies from the elements of the foreign planet. We attain our knowledge of conditions on any given planet by absorbing the thought content of the brains of a few representative members of its dominant race. Every well-balanced mind contains the experience of the race, the essence of the wisdom that the race soul has gained during its residence in matter. We make this knowledge a part of our own thought content, and thus the universe lies like an open book before us. At the end of a given experiment in thought absorption, we return to the borrowed mind stuff, to the brain of its possessor. We reward our subject for his momentary discomfort. Discomfort by pouring into his body our splendid vitality. This lengthens his life expectancy immeasurably by literally burning from his system the germs of actual or insepid illnesses that contaminate the bloodstream. This, I believe, will conclude my explanation, an explanation to which you, as a race in whom intelligence is beginning to dawn, are entitled. But you have a long road to travel yet. Your thought channels are pitifully blocked and crisscrossed with nonsensical and inhibitory complexes that stand in the way of true progress. But you will work this out, for the divine spark that pulses through us of the larger universe pulses also through you. That spark, once lighted, can never be extinguished, can never be swallowed up again into the primeval slime. There is nothing more that I can learn from you, nothing that I can teach you at this stage of your evolution. I have but one message to give you, one thought to leave with you. Forge on. You are on the path. The stars are over you. The light is flashing into your souls the slogan of the federative sons beyond the frontiers of your little warring worlds forge on the voice died out like the chiming of a great bell receding into immeasurable distance the supercilious tones of the professor had yielded to the sweetness and the light of the greater mind whose instrument he had momentarily become. It was charged at last with a golden resonance that seemed to echo down vast, spaceless corridors 
beyond the furthermost outposts of time. As the voice faded out into a sacramental silence, the strangely assorted throng moved by a common impulse lowered their heads as though in prayer. The great globe pulsed and shimmered through its sentient depths like a sea of liquid jewels. Then the tentacle that grasped the professor drew him back towards the scintillating nucleus. Simultaneously, another arm reached out and grasped Bill Jones, who, during the strange lecture, had ceased his wooden soldier marching and had stood stiffly at attention. The bodies of both men within the nucleus were encircled once more by the single current. From it again put forth the tentacles, cupped their heads, but the smoke-like essence flowed back to them this time, and with it flowed a tiny thread-like stream of violet light. Then came the heaving motion when the shimmering currents caught the two men and tossed them forth, unharmed but visibly dowered, with the radiance of more abundant life. Their faces were positively glowing, and their eyes were illuminated by a light that was surely not of earth. Then before the very eyes of the marveling people, the great globe began to dwindle. The jeweled lights intensified, concentrated, merged, until at last remained only a single spot, no larger than a pinhead but whose radiance was notwithstanding, searing, excruciating. Then the spot led up and leapt up into the heavens, whirling, dipping, and circling as in a gesture of farewell, and finally soaring into invisibility with the blinding speed of light. The whole wild, improbable occurrence might have been dismissed as a queer case of mass delusion, for such cases are not unknown to history, had it not been followed by a convincing aftermath. The culmination of a series of startling coincidences, both ridiculous and tragic, at last brought men face to face with an incontestable fact, namely that Bill Jones had emerged from his fiery baptism, endowed with the thought-expressing facilities of Professor Ralston, while the professor was forced to struggle along with the meager educational appliances of Bill Jones. In this ironic manner, the space wanderer had left unquestionable proof of his visit by rendering a tribute to innate intelligence and playing a jovial jest upon an educated fool. A neat transposition. A Columbus from a vaster, kindlier universe had paused for a moment to learn the story of our pygmy system. He had brought us a message from 
the outermost citadels of life and had flashed out again on his aeonic voyage from everlasting unto everlasting. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSV FM 91.9 in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. I just read The Jovial Jest by Lilith Lorraine, which was first published in Astounding Science Fiction, May of 1930. Right now, we are listening to Meehan Perkins Duo's performance of the Percussion Suite, particularly Percussion Suite 3, composed by Joanna Beyer, who studied with Henry Cowell, Ruth Crawford Seeger, and Charles Seeger, who I spoke about at the beginning of the show. So... I'll just kind of go back and out because we listened to quite a bit. Um, after the diaphonic suite, number four, we followed that with the piano study in mixed accents performed by Jenny Lynn, composed by Ruth Crawford Seeger. That was followed by... Um, Piano Variations by Aaron Copeland performed by Spencer Meyer Um, that piece was composed around the time when Copeland switched from a more jazzy work style to focusing on absolute music it used serialist techniques microtones and dissonance The piece had a mixed reception, described as new, strange, dissonant, stark, bare, and disconcerting. Uh, Leonard Bernstein said that he adored the piece and that he used it at parties to empty the room, guaranteed, in two minutes. It was to him a synonym, synonym for modern music, so prophetic, harsh, and wonderful, and so full of modern feeling and thinking. Uh, Martha Graham, the mother of, mother of modern dance who taught at Bennington, my alma mater, uh, produced a dance, diathrambic, to piano variations. Copeland admitted to being utterly astonished that anyone could consider this kind of music suitable for dance, although her choreography was considered as complex and obtruse as his music. That was 
Well, I'll announce this. So this is... Um, Martinez Borget's String Quartet performance of Quartet Number no. 1. Femme Vivo, composed by Silvestre Revutas, a Mexican p- composer. Um, after our Aaron Copeland, we heard uh, Danielle Lombardi's performance of Sinister Resonance, composed by Henry Dixon Cowell. Cowell? Sorry. Sinister Resonances uses the inside of the piano, and I highly suggest you look it up on YouTube to see a live performance of it, because it's really cool. Uh, Cowell describes five different methods to play the piano for this work. He said, um, and I quote, In Sinister Resonance, one has to stop tones at the very beginning on the low strings. Then later on, one mutes the strings at the bridges so that the tone can't go through the bridges and back again, and this produces a tone quality which has its own special values. And thirdly, harmonics are produced by touching the strings very lightly a quarter of the way through, just as one might produce a harmonic on a violin. And all of these things produce a set of tone colors impossible to obtain in any other fashion. Uh, Cowell actually convinced Charles Seeger to take on Ruth Crawford Siegel, Seeger, uh, who we were listening to earlier on as a student, who later he married. Um, and Cowell was viewed as an ultramodernist like Seeger and Crawford. And that was followed by um, the Ars Ludi Ensemble's performance of Rotativa per du pianoforte et ensemble de percussioni composed by uh, Giacinto Scalisi uh, Rotiva Rotativa was his second work so now that we've heard all about the music that was playing this show we've played a lot more of these like short particularly when we were talking about Ruth Crawford Seeger, all of those pieces were like one to two minutes. And normally I put on pieces that are like 10 to 20 minutes. So I have less songs to announce. But anyway, let's talk about Lilith Lorraine, the author of our stories today. Uh, Lilith Lorraine was one of at least five pseudonyms for Mary Maud Wright, born Mary Maud Dunn in 1984. She began writing as a crime reporter, but she is known for being an editor, short story author, and poet. She was the editor of The Raven, a poetry zine, and Different, a poetry zine that contained science fiction. Later, in the 50s, she published Challenge, the first poetry periodical devoted to science fiction and weird fiction genre. And today, I read one of her short stories, and I'll probably finish up today with a couple of her poems after I tell you a little bit about her. Uh, She was born and raised in Texas at 16. She received her only officially known degree, a teaching certificate. She was introduced to her husband, six years her senior, by his brother, who was one of her students. 
It is believed that she moved to San Francisco under the name Gertrude Wright. And now I'll talk about what is known about Gertrude Wright. Um, in the mid-20s, she found Theosophy and had seances in her home. And later, she started a school devoted to it that taught the wisdom of a mystery cult that had existed in Egypt and had instructed Christ. The point of this mystery cult was to create a utopia and birth a superman, which is presented similarly to Christ. Uh, a description of what was taught was described as follows. Character building and the removal of hate from oneself, laws of mind, including thought transference with abstract philosophy. Uh, Gertrude Wright performed the role of the high priestess, Zorenda, for the cult uh, in 1927. So this is three years before the story we listened to. Uh, the cult, described as a quote-unquote love cult, was raided and one of the founding members, Russell Alley, was charged with delinquency of a minor. Gertrude Wright skipped bond and was found in later news articles to be in Mexico. Though, according to the 1930 census, she was back in Texas with her husband. Though she had described an alternate history of both spending seven years in Mexico during that time and getting her degree at University of Arizona, which she wouldn't have been doing if she was in Mexico. Anyway, as far as I can tell, there's like a lot of... She lied a lot <laughs> about who she was and her background. Uh, she published two novellas before the story that I read um, in which the roles of women changed in utopias uh, that analyzed marriage, economics, and love. Her first novella, The Brain of the Planet, was viewed as a feminist utopia, providing an economic analysis of the institution of marriage. And to quote from the story, for with both sexual jealousy, for with both sexual jealousy and the economic pressures removed at a simple stroke, all marriages were based on real love, on affinity of tastes. Uh, her second story, Into the 28th Century, is about a man who time travels 800 years in the future to a socialist feminist utopia. And in this story, women had, as a part of a socialist revolt, demanded equality. Men, to kind of fight against them, abandoned chivalry. And women threatened to stop having children unless they were treated with respect. Without being mothered by women, the men stopped being chivalrous and instead respected women as equals. And in the end of this utopia, uh, women take political power because the government is focused on education, beautification, and spiritualization of life. In this future, machines carry fetuses to term and marriage is based on love, not for economic support. So... You know, she's interesting because she was one of these first female sci-fi writers about utopias, and she wrote a very different story than many of her peers. So, I'll read maybe 
a poem or two of hers. Just to let you know, we are listening to the Radio Symphony Orchestra of Frankfurt's performance of Arnold Schoenberg's this is German, so Belgian music zur Einer Lichtenspiegelsen OP34 so a little bit of that and then some poetry The Acolytes by Lilith Lorraine The elder ones are stirring as the red stallions of chaos champ their bites with rage and they have sent their messengers ahead proud with the knowledge of their alienage They walk apart from men, the Acolytes by stagnant pools and rotting sculptures whispering of dark, delirious delights as young gods die among their worshippers. They dream of dim dimensions where the towers of Yugoth pierce the decomposing dome of skies where dead stars float like evil flowers afloat on tideless seas of poisoned foam. Black tapers glow on many a ruined shrine. The patterns coalesce, the good, the bad, the old familiar stars no longer shine, and I, and I, am curiously glad. That was the poem, The Acolytes, by Lilith Lorraine. Here we have We'll Launch Our Spaceships Yet by Lilith Lorraine. Uh, in the introduction of this set of poetry out of fancy, Fantasy Book, Volume 1, Number 3, in 1948, it says, Song of the Spaceways, in the belief that science fiction poetry has been slighted in favor of the more fantastic and weird elements, we dedicate this page to the prophets of tomorrow. When submitting material for Songs of the Spaceways, please send your poems to the poetry editor, Lilith Lorraine, Rogers, Arkansas. Also send your votes on these poems to Miss Lorraine, 
who will make a payment of $1 for each poem accepted and $5 for the best poem printed per year as judged by reader's vote. And here's Lilith Lorraine's poem. We'll launch our spaceships yet. By Lilith Lorraine. The sirens of the satellites are leaning from their stars with purple-crested princes of old imperial Mars, the spider kings of Pluto with their lizard-armored slaves, the cold sardonic saurians that rise from Neptune's waves, the wingshod men of Mercury, the pale Iranian knights, the golden maidens of Ganymedes aglow with jeweled lights. The guardians of the galaxies, the legionnaires of space, are watching through their telescopes a self-destroyed race. Some are watching greedily, and some with sorrowing eyes. For some are human weak, and some compassionate and wise. But all declare unanimously, as thought waves meet and blend, the earthmen choose the evil road that leads to journey's end. Soon there will be burst a flower of flame, and all the worlds will know another race has gone the way that only madmen go. Another race has gone the way that only madmen go. But on the seared and broken earth a strange new courage springs and on the very brink of doom the voice of freedom rings the swords of hate fall powerless before the conquering darts the quenchless will to brotherhood that glow in simple hearts their songs float through the galaxies as the old earth sways and croons and sends her challenging echoing through all the listening moons. Sheer from the eagle's battlements with atom flaming jets, we'll blaze the trails for brotherhood, we'll launch our spaceships yet. We're currently listening to Untitled Fragment, uh, composed by Benjamin Britten, performed by the Royal Northern Symphonia. This has been Books and Blondes with Ray Guns on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara 91.9. Stay tuned for more music. Mm-hmm. 